there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Led Zeppelin broke up. Magnum P.I. made its debut on CBS just as the wonderful world of Disney came to a close on NBC and United States copyright law was amended to finally include computer programs. Then, just as the year came to a close in one of the most shocking moments of the entire decade, John Lennon and Yoko Ono returned to their apartment in New York just before 11 and the deeply troubled Mark David Chapman stepped out of the shadows and he shot Lennon four times. This evening, John Lennon arrived at the emergency room at the Roosevelt uh, Hospital. He was dead on at the time of his arrival. Numerous resuscitative efforts were made after his arrival in the hospital, including transfusions, surgical procedures, other procedures. But in spite of the effort of many physicians and after many procedures, we were unable to restore the life of Mr. Lennon. Even as we wrestled with the heartbreak of losing one of the great artists of the modern age, we were there for the genuinely remarkable films of December of 1980. As always, I'm Drew McWeeny. Welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, how are you? Me. I'm, that's me, Scott Weinberg, <laughs> podcasting how? from Philadelphia. I don't, I don't think me is the correct answer to how are you, but. I am. I mean, I'm as good as can be being Scott Weinberg, but holy macaroni, December 1980, lots of popcorn stuff, lots of grown-up stuff. This is one of the best months that we've had yet. When I was looking at this lineup, I've seen 10 of these in the theater that month. To me, that's nuts. Like I think about now what it would take for my kids to get me to take them to 10 different films in the theater in one month, and I don't think that would happen. You also got to remember that they would come out in December and last until February or March. And this was also the same time period where I finally noticed hype. Like I would get excited when the soundtrack would come out or when a book would come out and I would buy everything. If I was interested, I didn't even have to see it first. I would start buying stuff the moment it was available. And a great case in point was our first movie this month. Join us for the fantastic adventures of Flash Gordon. Having been taken prisoner by an ally of Ming the Merciless, Flash escapes only to face the gauntlet of the swamp. Leave him! He's mine! I hunt him alone. Ah! Is this the end? Will Flash survive? Find out now at a theater near you. Music by Queen. Rated PG. Well, I, it's, it's a remarkable movie. 
first and foremost, you cannot talk about the film without talking about Queen's soundtrack. It is one of the great instances of hiring somebody to do a score, and the score becomes this living, breathing thing that has its own life aside from the film, but you can't think of them separately. And the moment you hear bum, 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 you knew what was coming. It was such a great, exciting, I still think one of the most exciting moments on any album is at the very beginning of that when you hear, Clytus, I'm bored. And it all goes from there. I love that opening. I love the way it pulls you in. Drew, why don't you tell our listeners the importance of that phrase? Well, that was actually the proposed title for this podcast when we first started talking about it. Drew threw out a dozen titles to me, and I threw out a dozen titles to him, and we both really liked Clytus I'm Bored as the name of our podcast. And then Bobby came to me and said, you know, it's cool to be vague and nerdy and all, but you really want it to be more descriptive. So I went, fine, and we went with 80s all over, which I've now grown to love. It's weird that this film exists in a sort of pocket where there's no sequel, there's no anything else. It's just that one movie. I'm really surprised Universal didn't try to milk it for more over the course of the decade, but it's one of those films that I think everybody is fond of now. I don't actually remember how it did. I don't know if it was a hit or if it was a failure or if it was a middling. It did decent, but it didn't do as well as they had hoped, which is, of course, if it doesn't make Star Wars money, then they're disappointed. It does have kind of a reputation for being uh, campy, corny, cheesy. A lot of people mistake that for people saying that it's a bad film. And I would, I, in, on a stack of Bibles, I could explain to the most astute and learned film scholars in the universe why Flash Gordon is a very entertaining, well-made movie. I, I really don't even think it's much of an argument. I think that Mike Hodges is a skilled filmmaker. I think if you look at the work he did on either side of this, Mike Hodges wasn't a guy who showed up and was just goofing around here. This is a guy who had done stuff like Pulp in 1972, and Get Carter is a huge film for him and very important. And I think you look at his work, he understands genre very well. I think he was very good at working within a genre. And I think the script that they had for this film, when you look at Lorenzo Simple Jr., you look at the, the kind of stuff he did. Look, one of his major credits was the Batman television series. They knew what they were making. There was no question what they were making. He wrote King Kong. Simple wrote a kind of, I don't want to say camp, but it plays campy now because we're not used to seeing this kind of cheerful optimism as part of our pop culture. I like Susan Sontag's original definition of camp. She defined camp as failed seriousness. There's nothing to me in Flash Gordon that's not intentional. It's very colorful. It's very broad, theatrical, operatic, cornball even at moments. And I think all of that is by design. The tone might not work for you, but to say that it's a mistake, I think is unfair. Well, I think it's clear, like they went back and they looked at what the original 30s stuff was. The original 30s stuff wore hard on its sleeve. It was as, as down the middle, sort of earnest as it could be. And when you look at scenes here, like when Flash ends up playing football in the courtroom of Ming's palace, you look at stuff like the, the fight of the Hawkmen, the fight where they're on the tilting platform with the spikes coming out. They are looking back at an earlier time of more innocent sort of pop culture entertainment. And they're doing their version of it. They're doing it with tongue in cheek, but they're doing it with affection. Maybe cheesy. Sam Jones isn't a great actor. He doesn't have a ton of range, but he's a perfect Flash Gordon because he's kind of a big lunk. And I think they cast the movie beautifully around him. Uh, Max von Zydo is awesome as Ming the Merciless. That is as chewing the scenery a performance as you'll ever see, but he does it right. He knows exactly what he's doing. Most of it is actually me because Ming is an over-the-top villain. I think he plays it 
normal. I mean, like, no, but you look at him. That's what's great is Von Zydo knows that he looks already so crazy. Like that appearance is so it does 99% of the work for you. Oh, there's just so much I love about this movie. There's so forget the visual split, the the cast. All right. Melody Anderson is great. Topol is great. The young Timothy Dalton, Brian Blessed is wonderful. And it's peak Brian Blessed. He gets no more Brian Blessed than this. This is 100%. I love Ming's daughter in this movie. She is the living embodiment of the Euro sex star who was packaged in American movies as just, oh my gosh, we found her roaming free in Europe and you can't even believe it. Ornella Muti as the daughter and she has the infamous boar worms. No, not the boar worms. That's her. Sam Jones, like you said, if I had to nitpick something that kind of sticks out a little bit, Sam Jones looks the part. Not so hot on charisma. As most movie geeks know, his entire performance was dubbed by another unnamed actor. I would say maybe 33% of what I love about Flash Gordon is based on nostalgia, and I'll freely admit that. And you look at the acid-soaked skies in that movie, like the colorful sky sequences at the end, or you look at something like that scene where they've got the um, tree stump that they have to stick their hands in. Oh, it's my, it gave me nightmares. I absolutely love that scene. It's as perfect an embodiment of what the serials were as anybody could make. I think it's a better representation of the serials than Star Wars was. The reason Star Wars worked so well is because it reinvented it and took it seriously in a different way. This is clearly, no, no, we're doing the serials and we're doing it wholeheartedly. Well, we opened the episode with Flash Gordon, which is a fantastic adaptation that maybe was uh, misunderstood over the years. And I hope we turn some sci-fi adventure fans on to giving Flash Gordon an unironic check it out. Now we're going to move on to a nostalgic favorite for some people of our age group that didn't exactly age all that well. And it's called Hawk the Slayer. Enough, enough. Two blood brothers. Out for each other. You have found the power which is rightly mine. How? The firstborn brother, they called him Voltan. Enter, Dark One. The devil's agent, the servant of evil. Kill him! The secondborn brother, they called him Hawk. One secret weapon, the ancient power of the sword of mind, and he was out for revenge. Two blood brothers with only blood between them. Beyond the edge of darkness, there is a world of sword and sorcery. I am pretty sure this is the film that the guys who made Your Highness were thinking of. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's the it's there are two different schools of fantasy that existed I think in the 80s and to me they were always divided by rating. You either went the real sword and sorcery where it looked like a Boris cover and you knew you'd have nude girls and blood and everything else and that was the R-rated version. And then there's this version which is the PG down the middle sort of family version and My biggest problem with most of them is because they were fairly low budget, these films ended up being, to me, a much more boring subgenre. And this one in particular is all horseback riding. If you like horses, Hawk the Slayer will blow your mind. If you're not a big horse fan, good luck. To to cover your qualification, though, where would you put Beastmaster under this? Because it's PG, but it also has numerous naked boobs. 
Don Coscarelli somehow brainwashed the MPAA for a moment or hypnotized them and managed to sneak nude Tanya Roberts by the PG. But Beastmaster works because Beastmaster is kind of big and fun and goofy. And Beastmaster also, it gets pace right. Beastmaster never stops moving. Hawk the Slayer never starts moving. It's your typical Conan the Barbarian kind of uh, story. It's as if they knew that it was coming and they decided to, you know, we want to strike while the iron's hot. I remember that this is one of those movies that promised the sequel, Hawk the Destroyer, and they were talking about it in the press even before this one hit theaters. And then the sequel, of course, never happened. That was a big thing in the 80s was the movies that would call the sequel before the first one came out and then never, ever make that sequel. Jack Palance looks embarrassed in this one. I think John Terry, the guy who stars as Hawk the Slayer, might look embarrassed if he could project a human emotion through his face. Oh, dude. When you're like 10 years old and you notice that somebody's a bad actor, that's a bad actor. We would be remiss if we didn't mention that Hawk the Slayer definitely does have a an affectionate, unironic fan base out there for people who love swords and sandals or Dungeons and Dragons or quest movies. It does have a vocal fan base out there, and if you have a high tolerance for inept filmmaking and bad screenwriting and atrocious, I mean, even on 1980 level, atrocious special effects. Let's move on from the goofy to the sublime, Drew. What do you got? For years, this was the film that I would use to prove that the Academy Awards were full of shit. (laughs) Any self-respecting voting body pick Robert Redford's Ordinary People as a better film than Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. I'm the best. I can take him on anybody. You're dead. You're married. Leave the young girls for me. There's no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody. I'm not a big fan of doing the whole look back and knock the Oscars with hindsight kind of thing, but in really egregious cases... How? Who in the world would say, I mean, Ordinary People is a fine film. I, I definitely now have a different respect for Ordinary People, and I think it does what it does very well. I think Raging Bull is just one of those movies where Martin Scorsese was so hungry and he wanted to make art every time out. Not just good films, but this is that moment where he, post-Taxi Driver, he started to realize, holy shit, this is really working. I'm making amazing things. And I think the challenge here is, half on his side and half on De Niro's side. And I think that both of them together came into this movie saying, we are going to prove that we can do whatever we want. We can literally change the shape of De Niro's body. We can, Martin Scorsese says he can make any film. Let's do this. And the, to pick Jake LaMotta as the subject of a biopic is already half crazy because He's not a person that I would ever want to be in a room with for half an hour, much less spend two hours learning all about him. He's interested in those gray area characters. Jake LaMotta, despicable in some ways, admirable in other ways. And that's what I think drew Scorsese to this story, yes? Well, and and I think also the idea of the punishment that LaMotta would heap on himself. It was the only thing he had to offer anybody was when he got in a ring and we get beaten silly and just take it and be able to keep going that is really his only skill in life and watching him as an animal just bull through the rest of his life just just breaking things because he doesn't fit and he doesn't know how to behave and he can't just enjoy things i didn't get it in 1980 fully as a kid i knew that jake lamotta was fascinating i the physical transformation that de niro goes through over the course of the film both from fat to thin and from being in the best shape of his entire life to the worst shape of his entire life. All of that registered for me. 
but it's really only in time that I've I've come to appreciate what a disturbing portrait it is of somebody whose only thing they can offer the world is that they can take a beating. As a kid, you see a story like this, and he's just an awful person. You're like, why wouldn't his brother-in-law and his friends and his wife, why wouldn't they just leave him? He's a monster. And then you become a grown adult and you know that, you know, human beings are mostly gray areas of good and bad. And then you watch Raging Bull and that question of why doesn't everyone just abandon him is not as simple. De Niro's performance is so gigantic that it easily becomes the only thing that you talk about. But Kathy Moriarty who was a kid in this movie. She's so young. Watching her collide with LaMotta and watching her get pulled into his world, you really want to step in and separate them. Like You can't help but feel protective of her, the performance she gives in the film. And then there's also Pesci, who way before Goodfellas ever became a thing, this performance is next-level brilliant. And he and De Niro together are magic. There's not a, a wasted moment between the two of them. Does it seem to you that Raging Bull was that final just close the door on this guy's a great it was and it also started off a decade where he couldn't get arrested i know i even wrote down in my notes right after this he did king of comedy and after hours they were incredibly hard to make and that did nothing at the box office he was having the hardest time commercially and it seems like throughout his career he makes a great crime film to kind of uh, financially supplement the weirder films he wants to make. It's like Romero having to make a zombie movie. He knows that they'll give him money for that. Scorsese, if he he says, I'm making a crime film, he'll get financed. There's no question. It's the other stuff that I think he has to fight to push up the hill, and it takes him forever to get something like Silence made, where he could make 15 The Departeds in that time if he wanted to. How great is it to have been able to grow up from, like, Raging Bull to silence and and just watch this guy, this master's uh, evolution. That's what I don't know if people understand is the excitement every single time. Like one of the reasons that Martin Scorsese is Martin Scorsese is because I would get so excited knowing that he was working on something and knowing that we were going to get something soon and whatever it was going to be, it was going to have his signature on it. And that signature is something that I have really come to crave as a film goer over the years. I agree with you. I think Raging Bull is the moment where it's clear he's not just doing urban crime films. He's not just doing that. He's making art. Michael Chapman's photography, the black and white photography in the movie is otherworldly. And the way the fights are staged, every fight is a separate movie. Every fight you can just take out, look at how he approaches and shoots that fight. And he's telling you a complete story each time. It is a masterclass start to finish. The biggest compliment that I think you can give a director or a screenwriter or producer, any filmmaker really, is that whatever they make, I'll see it. There's some Scorsese films I don't like very much, but I will always see what Scorsese has. It is an like you said, it is an event, and I'm just uh, I'm grateful to have been able to you know watch watch him throughout the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 10s. He's just amazing. He deserves it. I mean, it's a cliche for film buffs to praise uh, Scorsese at this point, but fuck it, he deserves it. We're going to move from one of the best dramatic films of the year to, in my opinion, one of the best comedies of the year. Uh, my sister and I rented this on VHS one weekend, and I think we watched it four times between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It is the absolutely adorable, venomous, sweet and sour, 9 to 5. <laughs> 9 to 5 has the critics raving on overtime. Bingo. The comedy hit of the season, says CBS Radio. I'm no fool. I've killed the 
boss. You think they're not going to fire me for a thing like that? Playboy magazine calls it the liveliest office party of the year. And the New York Daily News says Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton make a terrific team. 9 to 5 from 20th Century Fox, rated PG. Now playing at a selected theater near you. I hope Bobby cut in the entire 9 to 5 song. As a matter of fact, Bobby, if you wouldn't mind, put in the 9 to 5 song while I'm talking right now. (laughs) It's crazy because Flash Gordon, one of the most recognizable scores of the year, 9 to 5, omnipresent. You could not avoid that song that year. I want to get into the social impact of this movie for a guy like me in a minute, but let's just talk about the film as, as, as a movie. When did you first see it? Uh, I saw it in the theater, and then when it came out on video, which was almost immediately, this is in, an important milestone. Nine to Five was part of a push by 20th Century Fox to change the way home, re- home video release windows worked. They decided with Nine to Five, they were going to go as close to day and date as they could with theatrical release. They got it down to about eight weeks. And it was a test just to see how fast you could turn something around from the theater to home video. But it never left theaters. It was on video, but it was also still playing theaters and a monster hit. And that thing just didn't stop making money. Right. And our listeners have to remember that back then, VHS was rental only. Right. And was still very new. I think if it had been like 1989 and they tried that, it would have killed the movie. But because so few people had home video at that point and had made the jump... It was still a novelty, and it was expensive, and you had to really want to go do that. Who's the funniest woman in this movie? Oh, Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton gives a movie star performance in this film. Oh, she's adorable, but Lily Tomlin is, owns this movie. I'm sorry. I will oh, fight interesting. You. I will fight you. I think Lily Tomlin is great in the film. I think Jane Fonda is very, very good in the film. Very funny, unexpectedly funny, because as a kid, I vaguely knew who Jane Fonda was, and she just was, to me, she was that drama actor. Well, she she and Tomlin are perfect, because Tomlin knows how to get it out of Fonda. And if you watch them in their scenes together, Tomlin is, look, Lily Tomlin's one of the funniest performers of all time. She's an amazing actor, and I don't think of her as a comedian, because I think she builds real characters from the inside out, and her work is very deep and rich. And I think she and Fonda, you see her teasing it out of Fonda in this movie. Dolly Parton is a force of nature. And I've got to imagine Colin Higgins, when he got her on set and he started to watch how she played off of the other two women, he had to be doing cartwheels behind the camera. He was so excited because she's great. She's a natural. Yeah, you can't fake the chemistry that these three women have. The scene where they're getting stoned together. Which was, by the way, a huge cultural scene for me because it normalized the idea of pot use as a bonding thing. This and Poltergeist made weed a little seem a little bit less creepy when I was a kid. I remember that that was, it made my parents deeply uncomfortable in the room because of the fact that it was treated as perfectly normal and acceptable. Yes, yeah, several years ago, Drew, I did a, a panel at South by Southwest with uh, some people from the MPAA, and they told me, historically speaking, 9 to 5 was one of their most controversial films ever because they got a lot of complaints about the marijuana scene. This is a tricky PG. I am blown away that this is a PG based on the gender politics in it, based on the insinuation of some of the stuff. When Jane Fonda's ex-husband catches Dabney Coleman in the room where he's being held hostage, he's in the bondage gear, it looks like. Just that implication is a joke that I think is a little bit wild for a PG, but this was at an age where PG was considered your parents will talk to you afterwards if they have a problem with something. If our listeners have to know anything about the rating system back then, it was that 
PG was pretty. You could see, as long as it wasn't overtly sexual, you would see topless women in PG. You would. It was wildly elastic. It was a lot more permissive PG back then. But anyway, back to 9 to 5, which is a screwball social satire about three great women who uh, are forced to struggle and suffer under a prototypical, awful, evil dickhead of a boss. When they started developing it, it was something that Jane Fonda was going to make. Every version that they had was a drama, like it was a straight drama about the workplace and about inequality and about how things were having to change culturally. And it was Lily Tomlin and her producing partner who suggested to her, this is a comedy. And it makes all the difference. They can get as as political as they want in this film, and they do. I think it's overtly political in terms of gender politic, but it's all treated through this crazy cartoonish filter, and it makes it enormously palatable. I think it made that cultural conversation an easy one to have as opposed to an unpleasant one, and I think it's one of the reasons it was a hit. It elevates beyond, oh, I think it's a, a really good comedy with four of good, Dabney Coleman, by the way. Dabney Coleman is first rate. The most Dabney, Dabney Coleman, Coleman performance ever. Yeah, if you needed someone to play an insufferable, chauvinistic asshole and still be kind of funny and not be so hateful that you would walk out of the theater. Dabney Coleman is the best. How many times over the decade after this do you think somebody said to an actor, you know, like Dabney Coleman in 9 to 5, that character type, he nails it here and you saw people doing him for the rest of the decade, like taking their cues from what he did here. I think one of my favorite things about the movie, when I was a kid, I didn't know anything about equality in the workplace. I saw 9 to 5 as a funny comedy. Probably didn't see that many comedies with women as leads, but that didn't register with me. To me, it was just another funny comedy. Throughout my young adulthood, whenever I would hear stories about how, oh, my boss at work is such a sexist pig, I'd think, that shouldn't be happening anymore. Didn't people see 9 to 5? I honestly thought as a kid that, like, oh, now that 9 to 5 is out, people could just watch that movie and learn. That's not how you treat women in the office. And of course, that's, you know, naive, but I like to think that that nine to five also instilled in me a certain respect for women that maybe my father's generation didn't get. I want to get into real quickly the filmmaker behind the movie. And I think there's a reason that you you probably felt something genuine there. Colin Higgins was a really special filmmaker, and he only ever directed three films, Foul Play, This, and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Um, he broke through as a writer. Harold and Maude was his script that he sold to Paramount and that he made with Al Hashby. And Harold and Maude is an amazing film. Colin Higgins was a guy who I think had a great comic voice and he had a real sensibility. He was openly gay. And I think he had a very strong sense of how to direct women. And like George Cukor, I think he's a woman's director. I think the reason 9 to 5 works so well is because he built a space where those three women who were totally different comedy performers, all three of them approach things differently. But he found a real interesting combination and he knew exactly how to play that combination it's the same thing he does with goldie hawn and chevy chase and foul play and it's the same thing he did in best little whorehouse he's great with character and he's great with being very real i think one of the reasons he must have been delighted with dolly parton is because she really delivers on the truth of her character she's not a joke dolly parton's totally engaged in this movie if you watch her even when she's not talking in scenes she's 100% in the scene. And I think Higgins, because he died in 1988, and he was he was an early AIDS casualty, and I think Higgins was one of those guys who was going to go on to a huge career after this. I, I really think we're lucky that we have the films he made, because I do think he left a giant stamp on them. Now, Colin Higgins was also the writer of a little film called Silver Streak, 
Which brings us to our next movie. Columbia Pictures presents Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Head over half for listening to you. Together again in Stir Crazy. Oh, I can't stop nothing my legs, man. Only these two guys could dress up like woodpeckers and get framed for robbing a bank. That's right, that's right, we're bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> Stir Crazy. Rated R. The whole world was just like me. Coming soon to a theater near you. Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor go to prison. There we go. That's literally all you need for a comedic vehicle. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel when you have talented writers and comedians. And Stir Crazy is nothing but a vehicle for Pryor and Wilder. And it is remarkably funny. Well, Bruce J. Friedman, uh, who was the, the writer on it, is a guy that was a novelist and a, and a comic uh, writer for years and years. And I, I think a really good writer. Uh, the Heartbreak Kid is the screenplay that he adapted from a Neil Simon thing. He worked on plenty of other films that you've seen, including Dr. Detroit and Splash. As a writer, his voice really isn't stir crazy. Sidney Poitier came on as director, and I'm willing to bet most of this movie was structurally the script and then everything else was thrown out. It feels like a movie that in scene after scene after scene, Wilder and Pryor are just doing what Wilder and Pryor are doing. And everybody else is there to go, okay, let's react around them. It's a it's a fairly plotless, but very engaging, broad farce. There's not much to it. And the only criticisms to the matter, I don't, the leads are not likable or it's not funny. And Wilder and Pryor are great. And both their chemistry and the written material is fantastic. It's a bit long. Don't you think it's a bit overlong? Well, I just, it's funny because I hadn't seen it in a lot of years. And I always remembered it as having stripe syndrome. Good first half, rougher second half. Watching it last night, it is fairly uniform. I don't think it's it's as divided as I used to think it was. It's too long. It is a two-hour movie, and it could easily be a 90-minute movie, and you wouldn't miss anything. But what really kind of blew my mind this time is it's a Gene Wilder movie. Richard Pryor is the straight man here. Almost every scene, Pryor's doing the lifting, and Wilder's the one scoring points on jokes. Every comic attitude in the movie is his. He's the one that has the whole arc about they want him to ride the rodeo bulls. So he's testing them and they're trying to break him and he won't let them because he just keeps acting crazier. It's Wilder who gets to play all that stuff. And he's great. I love Gene Wilder. I had no problem with it. But I was surprised how much of a backseat Pryor takes in the film. He's the guy who's there to tell him, hey, man, be cool. We're in prison now. And then Gene Wilder goes nuts because he's Gene Wilder. Because I hadn't seen it in so long, it was nice to see a Gene Wilder performance that I was not overly familiar with, and I could find little grace notes in again, and nobody attacked a piece of material like he did. Interesting to note that uh, this is one of the films directed by Sidney Poitier. Yeah. Well, he's got a great rowdy sense of humor. I love 70s Sidney Poitier, and I know... I know they're hard films to go back to now, but I love the whole string of comedies he made with Bill Cosby. Uh, those are fun films, and they're films that hold up as a reflection of a time and place. I like uh, what that 70s era Sidney Poitier was like. and It's clearly in this film. I was surprised at how dirty parts of this are. There's a strip club scene, as there is in most 80s films. It's a particularly low-rent and slightly skeezy feeling strip club scene. It's a little creepy when you remember it's Sidney Poitier directing this. One of my favorite uh, <laughs> things about the, about most studio comedies of this era is like, I don't even want to watch the opening credits because I want to be like surprised when I see, oh my God, this movie has Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, Barry Corbin, Jonathan Banks. <laughs> I always assumed that Grossberger in this movie and Oxblood Oxheart from Popeye were the same actor. Erlen Van Lith. No, this is the guy from Alone in the Dark. 
and this guy is crazy looking. I assumed he was the guy in Popeye as well. And uh, nope, uh, that is another gigantic, bald, weird looking white guy. Now I will go from one of uh, 1980s most memorable comedies to uh, a rather obscure little film that uh, I, I was really hot to see as a kid. And then, like most films of this ilk, I was disappointed. And I'll explain why. It's Agatha Christie's The Mirror Cracked. The quaint village of St. Mary Mead, England, home of Agatha Christie's extraordinary sleuth, Miss Marple, is in for some excitement. Hollywood has invaded, and a great American star is about to make a comeback. But she's not the only one. A little bit closer, please, ladies. When massive doses of ego... Lola, dear, you know there are really only two things I dislike about you. Really? What are they? Your face. Mix with lethal traces of poison. There's no business like show business. Elizabeth Taylor, Tony Curtis, Kim Novak, Edward Fox, Rock Hudson... Geraldine Chaplin and Angela Lansbury as Miss Marple. Very simple. If only one looks at it the proper way. Agatha Christie's mystery classic. The Mirror Cracked. If you guess who done it, you may be next. Did you like Agatha Christie adaptations when you were a kid? I like the idea. I like Murder on the Orient Express, and I really like the old black and white Marple comedies that you that used to show up on TV. Those I didn't see much of. I did see the ones that were made throughout the mid-70s and early 80s. And they always had like these enticing trailers that made you think that it was scary, like a horror movie. And then you'd watch it, and it was dry, like a boring movie. And this was the mirror cracked for me. Weirdly, and perhaps distastefully based on the tragic real life of actress Jean Tierney, a lot of those stories, you know, were kept hush hush. And so the idea that they finally been told through fiction and then later people could confirm, oh, yeah, that's what they were referring to. Hail Caesar did that this this spring. There's a whole thing in Hail Caesar with Eddie Mannix, and it's loosely based on some stuff that actually happened. And I, I think people like to play with real life scandals that were kept secret or kept hush hush. It's Guy Hamilton directing. And I knew Guy Hamilton at that point as the James Bond director. The only thing that I think this movie ultimately really did or the only impact I think it had, I'm going to guess this is where the producers decided, oh, Angela Lansbury solving mysteries. I like that. She's not really playing Marple here. I see this as like a dry run for Murder, She Wrote, because clearly most of the appeal of this film is Lansbury as the person who's going to explain it all to you. And that's what all the English drawing room thrillers are. She's very, as typical Angela Lansbury, she's quite good in the movie. Yeah. And so are most of the actors. It's just, it feels like... Um, it's a lot of scenery chewing from the the ladies. Kim Novak and Elizabeth Taylor are... Recapturing a little bit of their old school theatricality. And if you're an Agatha Christie diehard or a mystery buff, you might dig it. But You'll see young it, Pierce Brosnan in a brief Young role. Pierce Brosnan, exactly. But it's just, to me, it's just very clunky and dry. You know the shape of these things, and you also know whether or not that's a pleasure for you. I think some people like these the way they like warm baths. I think they know that they'll all feel roughly the same. Absolutely, I and I totally respect that. Uh, to me, you know, these are a little uh, stagey and dry and stilted, but hell, if you grew up on movies like this, then you probably take those as, uh, how do they say it? That's a perk, not a bug. <laughs> all right, Drew, you got you got a weird movie. What do you got? I was obsessed with this film for many years, and I think one of the reasons that I, I'm still fascinated by it is because it doesn't work, but it's the ways it doesn't work, and it's the things it's trying to do that I find so interesting, 
every time it comes up, I'll put it on again and I'll keep expecting it to be better film than it is. And it is Ken Russell's batshit bizarre adaptation of Patty Chayefsky's Altered States. In the basement of one of the country's leading medical schools, Dr. Edward Jessup, candidate for a Nobel Prize, is conducting the most dangerous experiment in the history of science. And the subject of the experiment is himself. We've got millions of years stored away in that computer bank we call our minds. We have got trillions of dormant genes in us, our whole evolutionary past. Perhaps I've tapped into that. The most terrifying experiment in the history of science is out of control. Altered states, rated R. Like Drew, I was enraptured by how insane it is. <laughs> I still really like it, and there are things I really like about it. First and foremost, I think it's an interesting notion. Patty Chayefsky clearly lived through the 60s and the 70s and was around the intellectual and the scientific communities, and those were people that were in his world, and they were guys who were doing like the consciousness experiments, and they were in the isolation tanks and they were taking heavy hallucinatory drugs and you know working on what dmt was and what it does to your brain and trying to chart all this stuff i'm sure there were a lot of really heady conversations that they had about what it means about evolution and you know was this the thing is this basically the tree of life and is this what we were talking about in the bible and it's the coded version of this and all those conversations and all that writing and all that sort of school of scholarly thought I find really fascinating. And there's guys like Terrence McKenna who have gone on to have long careers writing about psychedelic drugs and their shamanistic role in culture. All of that is in this movie, but so is Ken Russell. And I think the collision of Ken Russell, who has such a strong, clear voice as a filmmaker, and Patty Chayefsky, who has one of the strongest voices of any Hollywood writer ever, was destined to end in a nightmare. Part of what makes the film so interesting is looking at how they had to say every word that was in the script. They couldn't change it, and they couldn't add anything. And Russell hated the dialogue and the monologues so much that he would tell the actors, I want you to do it at triple time. I want you just to say the words as fast as you can say. I'm going to have you in the other room saying the words. Technically, you're doing it in the scene, and I'm not in trouble, but we're going to shoot it in a way that the words are going to become unimportant. You have a guy who is about nothing but monologues and words, and that's his signature, and a filmmaker who is purely visually driven who doesn't want to do the words, that tension is clear in almost every scene in the film. My attitude was, is it sci-fi, action, or horror? And this kind of looked like uh, horror and sci-fi combined. And it's not. I mean, it is sci-fi in a way, but and it does have horrific themes, but it's like a metaphysical in <laughs> journey. It is like... It's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but through the prism of... Do hallucinatory drugs unlock our biological early connections to our ancestral relatives? And what else are we carrying inside of us? And can we unlock it? And that's a great sci-fi or horror premise. And there have been a million movies that did it. I agree with you. This is neither fish nor fowl. Like you don't know really where to put it because of you have Dick Smith makeup effects and crazy, beautiful optical effect sequences. But is it a science fiction horror film? Really? Well, uh, we got to say whether you like the film or not. William Hurt. Fantastic. Absolutely. Uh, I think that Altered States was probably my entry point for both Ken Russell and uh, William Hurt, even though I wouldn't call it necessarily a great film. Very few people play brainy the way that Hurt does. You you believe it with him. I, I, I Yeah, the movie holds a special place in my heart because I always did remember Ken Russell's name and I dug up, you know, some we'll get to them in later, later episodes. But I dug up some really interesting horror films that Ken Russell made uh, that I liked a lot more than Altered States. And of course, 
like everybody, I, I've grown on to love what William Hurt. I also think there's something interesting here about the idea of can smart people be in a successful marriage? Because there's this interesting thing. The two of them are so smart and going in different directions. And the entire idea of trying to be a married couple seems almost counter to who they are. And that's a great thing. Like you could do a dramatic movie just about that relationship. And that's background in this. And that's just Chayefsky as a writer. Like he couldn't help but make them interesting characters. There's a lot to like in Altered States. I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a great film. But I would recommend it for the the heady themes that it has and the audacity. It it bites a lot off. It doesn't get everything, but it it aims for the stars. Let's put it that way. (laughs) It it, it has ambition, and I got to admire ambition in a studio movie that was released on Christmas Day. Uh, (laughs) Imagine running out with the family on Christmas Day to see Altered States. (laughs) And then, you know, and then home for a little turkey afterwards. All right. And then a week later, <laughs> we'd all run out and see our next film, Drew. Every New Year's Eve, the caller came out. One terrifying night of unspeakable evil, New Year's Evil. Rated R. Now playing at a theater or drive-in near you. Man, they get a lot of mileage just out of the fact that there's not a lot of New Year's Eve movies. So this movie almost by default ends up on lists. I know. It's like, oh, they did Friday the 13th. They did Halloween. And oh, some Canadians are in production with a Valentine's Day. What do we got? New Year's Eve or Arbor Day. All right, New Year's Eve it is. What do we call it? New Year's Evil. Done. Now, New Year's Evil is not a good film, even on a cheesy slasher scale. But it does have uh, a cult, like small cult following, partially because there aren't many movies that you can hop on social media and go, me and my friends are watching New Year's Evil tonight on New Year's Eve. You know, by default, it has kind of become a New Year's Eve horror staple. Uh, it, it's about a killer who is harassing a DJ he basically tells her that uh, a different person is going to be killed at midnight in every time zone. And she's trying to get people to believe this lunatic. And of course, nobody does. And it has a lot of really cheesy rock music, like the song, It's New Year's Evil! New Year's Evil! <laughs> please, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a musician, please take Scott's vocal and do your own cover of New Year's Evil. It's New I Year's want that. Evil! I can't get the falsetto like I used to. Oh, New Year's Evil. Uh, Drew, I saw this a couple of years ago with friends in Austin, and I was it's, it's got a couple of laughable moments, a couple of creepy moments, and most of it's boring. Killer's kind of creepy in this one. I, I there's there's moments in it where like he's I don't know like huddled in trash cans and shit. Where there's something genuinely kind of creepy about the staging of some of it. it for the most part, though, it's a thriller. It's and it's a contained space thriller. The idea that she's in her TV studio thing counting down to New Year's. I actually think it's a kind of a smart hook. Okay, you're he's counting down. You're in the last time zone. He's going to count down to you, and you're listening to it all happen. And at the same time, they're trying to stop it from getting to you. It's just not a great execution. I, the cast is, eh, I mean, they're fine. It's a bunch of people you've never heard of, and you'll never see. Nobody again. really stands out. Yeah. Uh, and it's not um it's distributed by Canon but it, it wasn't made by them and it doesn't really have their their signature the way you know like some trauma films just look like trauma films this is like a little Canadian indie movie that had the big hook of that that title and that's the only real reason you even know it existed it's not bad 
It's not great. It really only exists for the title. True. You know what it is? It's New Year's Evil! (laughs) Now, our next film is bad. And it's not just bad. Our next film was one of the first times I ever walked out of a movie theater, turned to my dad, and asked, why did they do that? Because my dad was a big fan of the first film and was happy to take me along with him to go see the sequel, Any Which Way You Can. It's on! What? The fight! The fight's on! Ladies and gentlemen, it's a prodigious event. It's an unparalleled cinematic achievement. It's a dramatic tour de force. Clint Eastwood in any which way you can. Rated PG. It was simply astound you. This movie was greenlit because the previous entry, Every Which Way But Loose, starring Clint Eastwood and a, a, a grungy orangutan, was a big hit. Look, the first one was written by uh, Jeremy Joe Kronzberg. That's a guy who has only one other feature credit, which was Going Ape. So clearly he had some shit he was working out. <laughs> That's the Tony Danza orangutan film. Yes. So clearly he had some issues. There was something about orangutans in this guy. The sequel's credited a guy named Stanford Sherman, and I'm announcing this right here and now on this podcast. Stanford Sherman, over the course of this decade, as we go through the rest of 1980, is going to emerge as my nemesis. I'm not going to tell you the rest of his films right now, but I'm coming for him, and I've got my reasons. So this is one of those reasons. This guy, I I don't even understand how you make this movie after you make the first one. Like The first one is about a guy who's a truck driver and a part-time bare-knuckle boxer. And he has some fights, and there's hijinks, and he's got an orangutan. That's literally it. Um, it also had Jeffrey Lewis, you know, his uh, Clint Eastwood's little buddy. And I would honestly say these are the movies where he became that. At least the first one is he's just kind of doing this. The second one, I have no idea. They're trying to get him to fight some guy for most of the movie. And he won't do it, and he won't do it, and he won't do it for whatever reason. And they, they keep making his life worse. And then he does it. But he doesn't want anybody to know he did it, but then it spills outside and everybody sees he did it anyway, and it makes no difference. I don't understand any part of the sequel. They rely overly heavily on the monkey this time. In the first movie, Clyde is in the movie, and every now and then they go, hey, Clyde, give us a punchline, and Clyde would do something, he'd fart or shoot somebody with his finger gun, and that would be hilarious. The second one, they like have whole storylines about Clyde. They spend a lot of time on him, and I'm here to tell you, he's not that interesting a monkey. And it is painful material to sit through. It is weirdly ill-considered. Weirdly ill-considered, says Drew McQueenie on any which way you can. When they when they break into the zoo so that Clyde can fuck some of the monkeys there, you realize these people are out of their minds. And a studio gave them money to make a movie. It is bafflingly bad. I don't call many films worthless. Any which way you can is worthless. I think there was a whole period of time where sort of redneck fetishism was in in favor. Like the thing was, hey, we're going to play the blue collar people. We're going to make shitty redneck movies and we're going to sell them. It feels almost like exploitation. And I think Clint Eastwood is not a hick. Burt Reynolds is a real shit kicker. When Burt does it, it's I'm a shit kicker. I'm making a movie about other shit kickers. When Clint does it, it feels like slumming. Uh, I don't like either of the films because I don't think they're funny. That's basically it. I, I'm, I'd be fine with uh, the, the the redneck comedy or the exploitation vibe. I'm fine with that in other films, uh, but they're just not funny. So, blah. Now, we're going to move on from that junk pile to another film that's not funny, but it's not funny by design. Richard Dreyfus and Amy Irving in the competition. Now, if you win, great. 
If I win, better. <laughs> and if neither of us wins, then we just let the corporation goes on. Richard Dreyfus, Amy Irving. If you're really in love, nothing's going to stand in your way. Rated PG. Nominated for two Academy Awards. Check your newspapers for local listings. I'm always fascinated by directors who make one film and that's it. And this is one of those guys who made a ton of TV, a couple of TV movies, but this is it for his theatrically released work. It's two pianists, Richard Dreyfus and Amy Irving, who are both part of this big international showdown thing in San Francisco. There's a huge prize for the winner and it's incredibly important. As they're sort of falling in love, they're also trying to decide, is this person doing this strategically? Is this to distract me? Do I give my full focus to the work or is this a real thing and should I pursue it? And then there's a subplot about a Russian defector who's trying to use the uh, the competition as a way to get into America and stay. Irving's coach is Lee Remick, who is in a couple of movies this this month, actually. She does the best work in the movie. She's actually she's pretty good in her whole relationship with Irving, I think is she's really offering her smart perspective on the toll that any kind of entertainment business takes on personal relationships. And I think the film has some interesting things to say about that. It's lots and lots of music. And I'll say this, everybody looks like they're playing. I know they're not, but they look like they are. And it's effective. Yeah. There's a lot of fake, uh, well, well lensed fake piano playing in this movie. Very well. The screenplay while decent, Almost feels like something that was written for to be a TV movie of the week. And then they got like Richard Dreyfuss and Lee Remick and they got some money and decided to do it theatrically. That's what it feels like to me because the screenplay is fine. It's good. It's decent. But it's the energy, the acting chops of the three leads that make it memorable, that make it decent. It's mighty soapy, you know, but it's uh, yeah. it's effective oh, yeah. for what it is. And if you want to see young Richard Dreyfuss, who is very funny and charming, wooing a young Amy Irving, who is... She's charming. She's a good performer, too. So, you know, uh, the competition. <laughs> okay. Scott? Yep. I, I, I believe it in my heart. Neil Diamond is fucking insane. Neil Diamond is the jazz singer. The story of a man who finds love with a woman who believes in him and finds himself torn. You can't change what has always been. Between his own dreams and the dreams of his father. And your son. The Jazz Singer. A very special happening. Rated PG. Now playing. Check newspapers for theaters. If you were to ask anybody why Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer was a hit, they would tell you that it was because it introduced the idea of sound. It was the first sound picture. It was the novelty of seeing a performer. That was it. Nobody, nobody would ever claim that it was because of the script or the storyline. Yet, in 1980, Neil Diamond decided that he was going to basically make the exact same storyline, which had whiskers on it, even when Al Jolson did it. It is such a shaky, ridiculous setup. I'm a cantor. My dad wants me to sing for the church. I want to sing pop music, so I'm going to go live my life. What church? What cantors work in a church? Oh, my God. It (laughs) is. Here's how you know you're in crazy town. 15 minutes into this movie, a buddy asks him to go play a gig, but because of where the gig is, there's something you're going to have to do. And then we hard cut to Neil Diamond in blackface with a fake afro on doing an entire song. He looks like Greg Brady, which is bizarre. You're looking at one of the biggest pop stars in 1980 in blackface in a movie that they released on purpose to theaters. 
what's interesting to me about the jazz singer is obviously as a Jewish kid, uh, I had ample opportunities to see this movie. If it was on TV or maybe my parents would have rented it or, you know, you have plenty of opportunities to see this movie if, when you're a Jewish kid in the 1980s. Oh, and I thought it was, I liked a lot of the songs and I thought the plot was, you know, then you see it when you're like 30 <laughs> and you're like, oh God, who wrote this? Watching it this last time, scene after scene after scene, it's like they've never actually been in a room with other human people to know how they behave. They stage it. There's a, a moment where he records something and it's a success. And so they cut to a party at Lucy Arnez's house and they're like dancing around with buckets on their head. And they're like playing the furniture with spoons. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> what is happening? Who acts like this? It's nonsense and i neil diamond never there's not a moment in the movie where he feels natural or he feels like he's at home in a scene with other people i have a i have an affection for neil diamond as as both a jewish kid and as a fan of kitschy 80s pop music i i admire neil diamond but boy is he not a good actor about 10 years ago i went and i saw neil diamond live because somebody had a ticket and asked me to go the day of and he's excellent at what he does and his audience loves it and they should because he's excellent at it making films is not what he does and the jazz singer is staggeringly crazy let's talk uh, for a moment about how a, a lot of movie buffs of our generation know Lawrence of Lawrence Olivier <laughs> because of this movie and Clash of the Titans <laughs> I have no son that scene it's one of the most miscalibrated performances of all time. It's remarkable how bad he is. And it's Lord Lawrence Olivier, who is a living legend, who gave more great performances than we can possibly list. And he's horrifying here. It's so over the top. It's so dinner theater. When he's setting that tone, it's no wonder that Neil Diamond is terrible because Lawrence Olivier is terrible opposite him. Uh, Olivier is clearly playing for the cheap seats and director Richard Fleischer does not have the interest or the balls to go to uh, Lawrence Olivier and say, sir, less, less, <laughs> a little less. It's funny because over the course of doing this year in uh, this podcast, we've had several other movies that are kind of built around a strong pop personality. We've had Bette Midler's Divine Madness. We had Gilda Radner with Gilda Live. We had Paul Simon's One Trick Pony. We have Willie Nelson's Honeysuckle Rose. And in all of those, I feel like those artists are presenting something of who they genuinely are to me. And that's the reason that even the ones that don't work are interesting. I don't think this has anything to do with who Neil Diamond is. There's nothing of the real person in this. And it's interesting because you realize he has no interest in giving you that. It's terrible. It has some great music, though. I'll give it that. It does. Some of some of his Neil Diamond singles are really fun and, and still hold up today as fun sure. pop music. Yeah, well, they built it with they built it around big songs. Big, yeah, big yeah. Neil, he, uh, Neil I think Diamond he's, songs. I like a lot of his stuff. And, you know, yeah. I, I feel a, a certain comforting nostalgia when I hear Neil Diamond or Kenny Rogers, for that matter. Oh, how about Kenny Rogers as the jazz singer? That would have been good. <laughs> you got to know when to leave the synagogue and betray your rabbi father. Know when to hold him. Oh, no, he's a canter. I'm sorry. Anyway, the jazz singer, uh, it's bad, but a kind of fun bad. Uh, I, I, I'll well, say that. You got to see it to believe it. Uh, it's truly a movie I think people should witness if you want just a display. Okay, now from an infamously bad movie to a somewhat obscure but very, very good movie, and it's called Tribute. Now, Tribute is based on a stage play by Bernard Slade, and if I'm not mistaken, Jack Lemmon uh, played the role on stage. And it's yeah, watched. I didn't realize that until very recently that that was a huge thing, and the movie was a reaction to that. It was because of the stage run. 
he was so good and they, you know, the producers bought it. And then it was in one of those rare instances where good things happen. The guy who destroyed it on the stage gets to destroy it in the screen. It's about a fast talking Broadway agent who uh, discovers he's dying and has to come to terms with that. It almost feels like just a stage play that was written for a lead actor to sink his teeth into and win awards. It's also fairly poignant and pretty touching in, in a death of a salesman kind of way of what this, the futility of life cycle of if all I've done is just like raise a family and, and barely kept my head above the surface. Have I really lived a life? Does, does any of it matter? And, uh, it's, it's sad and it's funny. Uh, and it's directed by Bob Clark, who had come off some good low budget horror movies and would go on to like Porky's and Christmas Story. But he did this in 1980, right between the two extremes. And uh, I think it's a very good film. Tribute. First of all, it's our second Robbie Benson film on the podcast. So we are living the dream. I One of the things I love about Bob Clark is how hard that guy was to pin down, man. He did a little bit of everything. Very eclectic mixture. The guy who did Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and Black Christmas. Then he did Tribute. Then he did Porky's Christmas Story. He did like From the Hip. And some were garbage, but he was completely eclectic. The only thing I would say about Clark in this one is that I thought Black Christmas had a really strong visual signature. I think uh, Christmas Story does. I think Porky's does a pretty good job of setting a time and a place. This one, it just feels like Bob Clark's whole job was just to stay out of the way, just to get out of Jack Lemmon's way, make sure that the camera was rolling, and then just not do anything. It's really very visually flat. Jack Lemmon, what I like about him and what I really respect about the later part of his career was he realized that his bread and butter was this kind of morally shaky guy. He kind of feels kicked in the teeth by life. He kind of earned it. And he did this beautifully in stuff like Glengarry Glen Ross and Shortcuts. And he really did, like, I think, take to this, save the tiger. When you consider that the early part of his career, he was so sharp and so funny and almost physical comedian was his niche. The shift in the later half of his career is really profound. And I think Lemon charted that territory fearlessly. And I think it's something that if you go and you look at all of them together, you get a real portrait of a specific kind of loser that I think Lemon was fascinated by. And if you love Jack Lemon, and God damn it, you should, tribute is worth seeing just to watch the guy. One of his best performances, he was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe, didn't win with another actor or maybe with an act, another actor with a lesser performance, then it would probably might play like just dreary melodrama. This, to me, is the beginning of him really nailing this character down. And I can see how the appeal was laid down here because he saw how people reacted and he realized I can do this. He's that guy who's the life of the party and who's always working the room, but who is, when you get him one-on-one -on -one and you ask him to be genuine, he's terrified. Nobody crumbles like Jack Lemmon. And yeah, and it's a great, great performance. So that's what I'll say about Tribute. Uh, and now we're going to move on to a an interesting film with a fantastic cast. Drew, what do you got? Man, is there anything the Nazis weren't into? Because this movie teaches us they came up with a way to win World War II by making gasoline out of something besides oil. And the only reason that we don't all drive cars driven by whatever this magic Nazi fuel is, it's because the car companies won't let us. That is the premise behind the stunningly dull The Formula. The murder. The clue. The code name. What did Genesis stand for? Synthetic fuel. The confrontation. You're not in the oil business. You're in the oil shortage business. The reason? The Formula. The people will accept 12 cents now because we can blame it on the Arabs. You're missing the point. 
We are the Arabs. George C. Scott, Marlon Brando, and Marta Keller. The formula rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. But Drew, how could you tell me that a film with George C. Scott, Marlon Brando, and John Gielgud could be boring? Woo, because Steve Shagan wrote it, buddy. Based on his book, this really, uh, the Nazi stuff is the hook at the beginning. It's like, okay, there's this weird Nazi formula that the uh, various oil companies have all conspired to keep out of people's hands. George C. Scott gets pulled into investigating this, and, you know, George C. Scott, he's very good at that sort of righteous anger, man on a quest movie, and my favorite example of that would be Paul Schrader's Hardcore where he's looking for his missing daughter and he's being pulled into a darker hole each step. And this movie wants to be that kind of a film where he starts to unravel this horrifying conspiracy. But whatever Shagan's strengths as a writer are, they do not include constructing a compelling mystery because by the end of this film, I was more confused about what was happening than I was at the start. I'm still not sure who the bad guys actually were. I am clueless about why they were killing everybody and when they did it. And I have no idea what the resolution of things means. Congratulations, from start to finish, I'm baffled. And John Avildsen did nothing to decipher the screenplay as director. A very talented journeyman director, Avildsen, best known for uh, the Rocky and Karate Kid and Joe and several, several, many, many good films. This was a misfire. By all accounts, John Avildsen and Steve Shagan started butting heads right at the beginning of the production of the film, and it shows. And you can do that, and you can come out with a great movie. You can have something like Blade Runner, where you have key collaborators in the film who don't even agree on what the movie's about, and you can still end up making a great film because they're all giving it the right thing. Right. Like, I don't even like you, but I think this podcast is going pretty well. What do you think? Exactly. <laughs> with the formula, I feel like both of them are fighting for different visions of this mystery, and I couldn't tell you what the mystery is. I don't know what they're fighting over because I can't figure any of it out. It's a giant mess. The whole film builds to this moment where you've got George C. Scott sitting in a room with Marlon Brando and Marlon Brando is going to fill in the gaps. And he's, you know, the uh, the architect at the end of The Matrix Reloaded. And he's going to tell you everything and explain everything. Money, not morality, is the principal commerce of civilized nations. Thomas Jefferson, 200 years ago. That is the philosophy that built this nation. You know about this nation. Wouldn't you ever give a second thought to American citizens? You're the reason their money's worthless. You're the reason old people are eating out of garbage cans. You're an ivory tower hoodlum, a common street killer. At least, oh Christ, there's some way I could nail you. You're gonna be nailing the American dream, Barney. Because it all started in the corner gas station. Remember, you used to take your bike down there and get free air? And Daddy said, uh, fill him up, Fred. Then you go down to Grandma's for Christmas dinner. Then when you got your first car, what'd you do? You took your girl for a ride. There was Fred, smiling by the pump there. He never let you down, because a gallon of gas never broke down. Well, it was oil that nourished the American dream. We're the great American tit, Barney. And without it, ain't no America. I, I watched it twice. I watched the scene twice, and I genuinely can't tell you what point they think they're making. It feels like they're yelling at you, but they don't even know why they're yelling at you. They're just, oil companies and money! And you're like, I know, what? It's crazy. Uh, Shagan has written better films than this. He wrote Save the Tiger, the Jack Lemmon film I mentioned, and he wrote the script for Primal Fear, which I think is a pretty great little thriller. But he wrote some real garbage, too. Stuff like The Sicilian and Nightwing. I would say in terms of just sheer frustration, 
this is the pinnacle of what Steve Shagan did. I'm absolutely baffled by this film's existence. Let's move on from a film that was never good to a film that I loved as a kid, and I am thrilled that it still holds up as well as it did when I was a kid. It is Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn, and Charles Grodin in the effortlessly amusing and likable Seems Like Old Times. Seems like Goldie's got it all. Yes, Your Honor. A career as a lawyer, a husband running for office, and an ex-husband <laughs> bank robber hiding out in her house. No! Oh, seems like something funny is going on here. Tell me you don't miss the fun. I don't. The laughs. I don't. The pizzas in the bathtub. Seems like Neil Simon's Seems Like Old Times. Rated PG. Coming soon to a selected theater near you. Think I saw it on cable 4,700 times. I love Seems Like Old Times. It is without a doubt one of my favorite Chevy Chase movies. My, uh, he's This is the character that I think he was best at playing which is a slightly responsible, but overall just goofy and, and lazy and wise-ass, but still a relatively normal human being. This and Stir Crazy were in theaters the same month because Stir Crazy is they're driving across the country and they stop and they get a job working in a bank doing this this stuff in a chicken suit and two guys pretend to be them and rob someplace and they go to jail for it. Here you've got Chevy Chase being forced to rob a bank. And so they're looking for him. And while he did it, there's a reason he did it and he didn't really do it. And so you've got him on the lamb. And I think it's, it's such a great, easy, simple comedy premise. You just put somebody on the run and you test them. And what makes this so good is, uh, you know, you talk about stir crazy as a reuniting them from silver streak. This is them following up foul play and saying, we wanted to put Chevy chase and Goldie Hawn together again. And they're awesome in this. Their chemistry is great in this movie. When you hear people talk about like the classic screwball comedies, like Bringing Up Baby and stuff like that, uh, there were a lot of those in the late 30s and 40s, and several that were really good. When they try to do that in the 80s, eh, sometimes feels a little belabored and a little flimsy, a little fake. Uh, it seems like old times to me is the perfect kind of throwback to screwball comedies where every all the jokes are character-based or it's farcical, some some physical comedy. Uh, it's well-written. The characters are likable. You want to see them succeed. There, there are legitimately clever set pieces because Goldie Hawn is... Oh, she's even better than that. My favorite thing about her is how she collects people. Because she's a lawyer and she believes in all of her clients, she's always giving them jobs and she's putting them to work. So... She's got this giant heart that they set up at the beginning of the film, and that leads to that supporting cast around the house who all work for her, who are also clients of hers, being terrific. T.K. Carter in this film, terrific. Her maid, terrific. T.K. Carter, our, our friends will know from The Thing, he's the gentleman who roller skates around uh, in The Thing, and he's great in this. This is one of his best performances. A really underrated character actor, T.K. Carter. Charles Grodin is the perfect foil in this movie, and he... Look, I, I think Charles Grodin is a genius. I think he's a genius who's very prickly, and he hasn't always been used correctly in film. And as a result, we don't have as many great Charles Grodin performances as we should. This is one of them. And he is perfectly cast as you understand why she should be with Charles Grodin. You understand why she's going to be with Chevy Chase. And that casting is really tricky because you have to see the appeal, but you also have to see why he's wrong for her. Grodin plays it perfectly. He's, he's the right guy to do that. The chemistry between the three of them, even when they're prickly towards each other, is just great. And if I'm not, I could be wrong. I'm no Neil Simon expert, but this is one of the few Neil Simon films that he wrote that 
is not based on one of his plays. I can't imagine it working as a play because he really takes advantage of staging comic set pieces that are bigger than what he could do on a stage. A lot of them involve Glenda, uh, the Goldie Hawn character, and her dogs and her household staff. There's the maid, uh, Aurora, in the house, and she's at the center of some of the comic mayhem. There's car chases. There's a final scene in a courtroom with uh, Harold Gould as the judge. And they're trying to explain to him everything that's happened. And almost every character shows up at some point in this court summation. It is completely ridiculous sequence. Gould has to keep all the plates spinning and he has to play that exasperation. And he's great. The entire movie bounces off of him in one scene. It's a really charming comedy. And I'm not the biggest Neil Neil Simon fan, but man, this is an example of every element kind of working together, including the director, Jay Sandrich, who most of America knows because he directed a vast majority of the Cosby show. That's what I remember his name from every. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he was he's a a big dude in in terms of television. And it's because of the Cosby show. Like he was a major voice in the that show. This film, I think, really holds up. And it's charming when you see it go by on cable or when you see it pop up. I always stop on it and I always enjoy the sequences I see again. It really is well built. A lot of the movies that we're covering this month are pretty damn popular and famous and well-known. So I think this might be our buried treasure. Uh, Let's call it buried treasure from now on. Every month we pick a movie, and if you've never seen it, we want you to watch it and let us know on Twitter what you think. And this month, I think it should be Seems Like Old Times because it seems lesser known, and it really is like a minor classic uh, of, of screwball comedy. And uh, I, I love it. I might watch it again <laughs> now that now, we're talking I'm, about it. I'm, I'm going to let you make that your buried treasure. Mine is our next film. If you're Richard Donner and you're looking to spend all of the commercial clout that you built up on the Omen and Superman, what do you do? If you answered, make a movie about a guy who tries to kill himself and ends up working in a bar that's full up with other broken people, then congratulations, because you just described exactly what Donner did when he made the film Inside Moves. <laughs> Hey America, the movie critics are feeling good again, and the reason is Inside Moves. The New York Daily News calls it worth cheering about. The Washington Star says it may well be the most heartfelt movie of the year, and Playboy calls Inside Moves original, winning, and exceptionally well acted. Richard Donner's Inside Moves, it'll make you feel good again, and that ain't bad. Rated PG. It got totally fucked. I mean, this was the release of it was handled improperly. It barely came out. This and it's is a, a shame. An, an early screenplay by then married couple Barry Levinson and Valerie Curtin, who were fantastic screenwriters. And Drew, why don't you uh, tell our, our listeners what is most memorable and, and lovable about Inside Moves? Because I agree, it's a very good film. Well, you got John Savage, who plays Rory, and he, the movie opens with his suicide attempt. He takes an elevator to the top of a building, looks off the side, and just steps off. He doesn't die. He's in the hospital. They have to rebuild his hip and his leg, and he goes through terrible physical therapy. And when he's released, he's still basically broken. He moves to a tiny little flophouse apartment. The neighborhood bar is this place that he stumbles into one day, and everybody in that bar is a misfit toy just like him. You've got a guy with hooks for hands, and you've got a blind guy, and you've got somebody in a wheelchair, and you've got the bartender there, David Morse, who I love, and I have a a huge affection for David Morse overall. This was the movie where I first really noticed him. And he plays Jerry, the bartender, who also has a bum leg, a lot like Savage. The difference is Jerry's can be fixed, and Jerry's a phenomenal basketball player. And Savage gets this idea in his head, which is if we get Jerry fixed, and if Jerry can work, and if he can get a job as a basketball player, and if he can be a a great basketball player, in some way, that fixes all of us. 
And that's what the movie really is. It's about the relationships of the bar and how all these people are kind of depending on one another to fill in the pieces that are missing. And when you see the end of the film, there's a it's one of those movies where they have over the credits, they have a photo of the entire cast and crew together. It's the crew shot from the end of the movie. And what that says to me is that Richard Donner and the people who made this film became a family while they were making it. And it's a film that they all felt very strongly about and that they felt like we all want to put our face on it. We all love this movie. And I think it's in the film. I think the film does a really good job of showing you how we find family wherever we have to. And knowing who Richard Donner is and what's important to him, to me, this feels like the film where you really see his heart on screen. It's a lovely movie. And I love the idea of how many big wins and successes do you have every day to keep you going? If we're lucky, we get those wins and successes a couple times a year. And, you know, you frequently get to hear good news from other people. And that elevates your spirit. That makes you feel good. Even though you can't have a win every day, take the happiness from other people's successes. And hopefully that makes you feel like a a more complete person. And I, I love the idea that Inside Moves is seeing one of their own succeed is enough. And John Savage is so good. His physicality in this the film, when you watch how he moves and how he turns his head and how he is with his body, the way he plays Rory's broken qualities, it's remarkable. It's a great physical performance. And Morris is the same way. Diana Scarwood's really good in this. Laszlo Kovacs did a terrific job photographing it. It's got a beautiful sort of warm feel to it. And uh, just as he did with Somewhere in Time, I think John Barry's score for this film. He's a great composer. Yeah, so if you want to see something from a guy who's generally known, I mean, Richard Donner is is Superman, The Omen, Maverick, Lethal Weapon. He is a big budget blockbuster guy. But Inside Moves uh, is is very touching and quiet and small, and I, I bet it holds a special place in his heart. Uh, our next movie is about, yet again, <laughs> miserable yeah. middle-aged white people who can't wait to cheat on their spouses. As if we didn't get enough of this in Middle-Aged Crazy and Serial, now we got Shirley MacLaine and Anthony Hopkins in A Change of Season. You are cordially invited to spend the weekend with one of the ten great wonders of the world, Bo Derrick and her friend, her friend's wife. Prepare yourself for some company. The wife's friend, their daughter. I thought I had problems. And their daughter's friend. This is a holdout from the 60s. As they all settle down. Let's go to bed. For a change of seasons. A change of seasons rated R. Now playing at a selected theater near you. All right, the 1980s. We get it. You were horny. Oh, God, there's nothing worse than marrying someone you love. And then your kids, once they hit 20, and then you realize you can't cheat. Oh, let's make 40 movies about it. Oh. It's funny because I feel like all the movies that we've covered so far on the podcast that fall under this heading were all holdovers from the 70s because it was the mid to late 70s that was that era of, you know, sex and drugs and free love and couple swapping and disco and general hedonism. I think they're trying to cash in on that new permissiveness. I don't think and I find it really interesting because Hollywood, for the most part, especially when you hear people rant about liberal Hollywood, You look at what studios make, and I think a lot of times it ends up being very conservative. Every one of these movies is about how this lifestyle is a dead end. What you really want is monogamy and your wife and your happy marriage, and that's the only way to get it right. Hollywood ultimately, under every one of these movies, ends as, this doesn't work. You have to be like this. And so as as much as I think they're trying to reflect culture, I also think there's this real conservative streak in a lot of these films. 
they they feel like they were made too late. Like none of it is genuine, and they're more than anything they're trying to say, look, this is why this doesn't work. Uh, unless you want to see Anthony Hopkins chasing Bo Derek, uh, Mary Beth Hurt early performance by her, and you know what? The performances are pretty good. It's just that it's repeating cliches that a aren't very interesting or insightful and b have been done already in television and movies ad nauseum i don't think it holds up generally we like you know we're pretty positive about a lot of the movies we cover but we we do want to mention that if we are critical of a film that you like we'd like to hear your feedback we've gotten a couple of criticisms and we're totally cool with that i like seeing that a movie from 1980 can still get somebody really passionate and worked up a film like times square you know i I know which one you're referring to and there are a couple of people that were really upset that we didn't like times square i love that i love the fact that that movie is still a vital and living and important thing to them and that's hopefully what this podcast will do with some of the films that we love is remind you that they exist and that you guys should see them and I absolutely don't believe that we are the only opinion about these films. Well, we have two films left this month. Wow. And Drew Drew is going to start off with one that has so many good names in front of and behind the camera. I can't imagine how it turned out so weak, and it did. How the fuck does Buck Henry make a political satire at the end of the Gerald Ford Jimmy Carter years with a cast including Gilda Radner, Bob Newhart, Madeline Kahn, Fred Willard, Harvey Corman, and the late great John Hancock and managed to almost completely avoid any laughs, even by accident. I'm not sure what the answer is, but you can find it in First Family. Remember when comedy was king? Now he's president, President Bob Newhart, first daughter Gilda Radner, first lady Madeline Kahn, first family rated R. Obviously, Buck Henry is a brilliant screenwriter, not so great as a director. Wow, the second half of this thing is one long, shitty racist joke, and it is racist. It is unacceptable, and it's the kind of joke that even in 1980, you know that that's not what African nations are like. How does Buck Henry, a guy, Saturday Night Live set the standard for smart political satire in mainstream America, and Buck Henry was a huge part of that. He wrote The Graduate, and The Graduate wasn't just a movie that reflected culture. The Graduate was a film that shaped culture. The Graduate set off a reaction in people where they suddenly realized, I don't have to be what I was told to be. And it caught a moment where I think it is genuinely a film of its time. I don't know who First Family is for. I don't know what president they think they're making fun of or reacting to, but it is as if none of the 70s happened. It wants to be a broad political satire, but what are its targets? It's not a satire because there's not one real thing that they address in the movie. It is at best a spoof. There is nothing sharp or focused about it, and that's what confuses me. And you wouldn't expect something like that from a writer as as clever as Buck Henry. And how did Bob Newhart read it and go, yep, that's it. Oh my God, Buck, you really hit the dartboard. I'm in. I don't get the character he's playing. I don't know what president he's playing. He is different from scene to scene. There's no real portrait of who he is. One of the reasons The Daily Show, I think, has has become the John Stewart era in particular, has become a shining example of what the best political satire can be is because at some point they decided that every single joke had to go through the question of what is it that we are ultimately talking about? What is our perspective? The Daily Show went from in the Kilbourne era, nothing but cheap shots and easy targets to being very on target, knowing exactly that they were skewering power. And when you're skewering power and taking down power, that's great. You have all the ammunition in the world. And you have all the moral 
foundation in the world. First family isn't taking anything down. There's no, there's no perspective. It is dumb jokes. How do you, how do you have Madeline Kahn as the hard drinking first lady who's constantly got booze in her purse and you can't find laughs in that? You can't give her anything to do? It's Madeline goddamn Kahn. She's a comic genius. With this cast and this writer, first family would normally be the kind of movie that you and or I would be like, all right, you know what? It's not so bad. It's got a bad rap. You know, it's got some funny bits. No. You've got Madeline Kahn who steals whole movies. You've got Fred Willard who steals whole movies. You've got Harvey Corman who steals whole movies. They can't they can't land a goddamn laugh in the film. I I like to think that if if this screenplay had landed under at the feet of a better director who had said, All right, this, this, then this works, Mr. Buck Henry. Uh <laughs> let's fix the rest of it. This movie is so wrong-headed and, and askew, I can't help but think that it was just like there had to have been some kind of major mistake. Because there's no way that anybody in the world has ever talked this much about first fucking family. <laughs> it's rentable on YouTube. I paid two ninety nine for it last night, and I feel like I got robbed. I'd love to hear people's reactions to it. Uh, you know, knowing that it, you know, it has such a great comedic cast, and that we think it's so terrible. I'm sure that at least a handful of people have been like, "Hmm, I want to see First Family." We want to know what you thought. I dare you. We want to know if you liked it more than we did. You won't. You won't. And we are now going to end December. And 1980, except for a very special bonus episode that we'll talk about in a minute, with a film that is... The reason we wanted to do this in the first place. Yeah, this is one of the movies that inspired this podcast. What am I? I'm Popeye. The sailor. Popeye. Olive oil. Pluto. Wimpy. The Commodore. And Sweet Pea. Your favorite characters come alive in Popeye. It yam what it am. You, Drew, true or false? This film was a box office bomb. I will say this. It was critically reviled. I even remember Pauline Kael, who was up Robert Altman's ass as far as a critic can be up a filmmaker's ass. She said, this doesn't work. It just lays there. It's not good. And I remember the critical response was a drubbing. He got his ass kicked. But I have done my research as a, as a guy who loves the movie. It, it did decent money. It just that it was a it was a co-production between Disney and Paramount, which meant that they, they had to split a big pot and they all expected it to do better. As was Dragon Slayer. Yeah. And it did make its money back. Uh, and by this point, as is being a cult classic, I, I'm sure it's made its money, but I don't really care about how much it made. I don't care if it stands out as a major bomb. I like this movie. I get all the complaints. I get the Pauline Kale. It just lays there that it's weird and 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 strange and uh, misshapen and it doesn't even really have like much of a structure to it. To it, the random and episodic and all over the place. I don't care. I like the production design. I love the songs. I like the cast. I like that it's weird and I think it captures the spirit of the original comic strip pretty darn well. I'm going to agree with you 100%. I think from the moment Popeye comes rowing out of the night and lands in Sweet Haven, and you see that set that they built, and that town starts to come to life, and the people start to show up, and you start to see how they're dressed and how they behave, and Bill Irwin's chasing his hat down the street, and you've got Donovan Scott kind of walking around his castor oil, muttering it, and you've got Richard Libertini, and you've got the guy on the, uh, the docks checking him in. It's magical, and I love this place that he built, and it feels like... This asylum that's on this little rock in the middle of nowhere. That yes. On it, and they're all crazy. 
There is this weird, absurd internal logic to Sweet Haven that, that doesn't make sense, that it, it, it takes place in a comic strip realm where they have different rules than normal world. I, I get that people think it's ugly and dreary looking. Fine. I think it's evocative. I think it's nifty. I think it's cool. I would say it's like the, the town from the prisoner on television. It is a character and it's fascinating. And the fact that it was a place that they built and that they still do- stands, still stands in Malta. It's awesome. Like, it's a great set. Like, that to me, that town has this life. Robin Williams, potentially miscast? Sure. But is he charming and working his ass off? Yes. Uh, yeah, he's he's doing the best he can. Would he's the, Is he the best guy to play Popeye? Eh, maybe not. Maybe not. But the I love the look of him. I love the arms. He gets the sweetness right. I think Seagar, the guy that did the original Popeye strips, uh, I've always had a theory about this. I, I believe that Seagar was locked in a, a mental hospital somewhere and he drew the cartoons with his toes because he, it is batshit weird. And the all the little details of what made Popeye Popeye were creepy as hell when I was a kid. The goon and the sea hag and the world of Popeye and the way things looked and the stretch and squash of it all. It's It was always very surreal and strange. And Popeye's arms and olive oil being you know a noodle, all of that contributed to the feel of that world. The first time I saw Shelley Duvall as olive oil, it was one of those moments where I'm like, oh, well, that's it. That's olive oil completely. That's really Popeye completely. That's it's all real. Anybody who grew up on Popeye cartoons has to agree in the pantheon of comic book movies. Shelley Duvall as olive oil has to be one of the best pieces of casting you could possibly imagine. It's re- it's ridiculous. And she is made of rubber in the film. Like you watch her arms and legs and the physical performance she gives. The fact that you have guys like Bill Irwin who are just background in this movie and their whole job is to contribute to the comic book atmosphere. What works about it is exactly that. Bill Irwin's a cartoon anyway. He's a genius. Like if you've ever seen his physical work on stage or you've seen his uh, Fool's Moon or any of the the live shows, he's a genius. And and he absolutely contributes to that feeling that you're in a cartoon world. There's so many little beautiful touches. I love when Bluto opens the door. Popeye and Olive Oil are standing there together with Sweet Pea and he gets mad and you go to the red and it's not a filter. They painted the set red. They painted the costumes red and everything was actually turned red for one second. That dedication to getting cartoon reality to happen is what I think Altman did so beautifully. And I bought it like I love the cartoon world. Yeah. And I love the idea that a guy like an auteur like Altman doing this this kind of movie means that it's not going to be what we would now consider a conventional origin story. It is going to be that in a way. But Robert Altman is clearly not a comics geek in that way. So he's take he's approaching it from a character point. Yeah, if you want to be critical, it's a bit overlong, maybe. Uh, you know, I, I love the Nelson songs. Love, 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 love. And all at once I knew, I knew at once, I knew he needed me. There's a reason that Paul W.S. Anderson used some of them in, in uh, Punch Drunk Love. When I talk about the hype stuff, I had the soundtrack for this. I had the making of book for this. I had the script book for this, which was just the photos from the film. I absolutely was 100% on board even before it hit theaters. I knew the album already pretty well by that point. And then I saw the movie. And then one of the shutters on the, the windows open. The sun comes in 
and the song Sweet Haven kicks in. From that moment on, that to me is as beautiful as any musical moment ever. You could put it up against Singing in the Rain or Grease, whatever musical really moves you. There are moments in Popeye that move me that much. I also think this is the first, you know, it's very, very early in Robin Williams' film career. At this point, he was still the lunatic wild man from Mork and Mindy, and people didn't quite know what to do with him yet. I, I think it's a brave piece of casting by Altman, and I think it pays off in the fact that the sweetness that Williams brings to his relationship with Olive and especially to Sweet Pea because Sweet Pea completes him in a way that he's missing. The whole movie is he's looking for Poop Deck Pappy who abandoned him and he feels broken because of it. He finds Sweet Pea yeah, and Ray Walston, who is phenomenal and who has one of the great numbers in the film when he finally shows up and sings about kids. Walston's great and from a different era. But I love that Popeye, that you take something this outrageous and yet you grounded it in something as genuinely beautiful as Popeye simply wants to be connected to somebody. And when he finds Sweet Pea, here's somebody who needs him the way he always wanted someone to take care of him. And so he can be that. And that's beautiful. And Williams actually plays it. It's not a joke. It's not thrown away. It's really enormously sweet throughout the entire film. And I think that the film earns real tears from from the way it drops the stuff at the end that the family stuff connects it really works and i like the fact that the popeye voice that like this comes across as a guy who's been at sea by himself for too long and when he's talking it in this movie it's a running commentary on the world that altman has set up for him oh look at these people that guy over there and williams does it really well he sells that as a real affectation not just as i've got to do the character's shtick Half of this is nostalgia. We loved Popeye when we were a kid, so you can never fully separate that. But I honestly believe that in most of the cases of these films, like a Seems Like Old Times or a Flash Gordon and a Popeye, if I had never seen these films and I watched them tonight, I would not love them as much, but I would still like them. I truly believe that. I think this one in particular is one that Age has been very kind to. I think the songs, they really didn't sound like anything else that anybody was doing in 1980. I can understand that they must have just sounded like they were from outer space. But now, because they aren't disco and because they aren't contemporary and they're not pinned to 1980, I think the songs have a real timelessness to them that has made the film feel fresh good, even now. Good point. Very true. Like, good point. I th- and I think Nilsson's stuff is wildly emotional. He Needs Me is a gorgeous piece of musical film where somebody is singing their heart, and that's what great musicals do. The best moments in this film are moments where the songs are as important to the characters as anything else we see happen in the film. I love it. I I just love it. (laughs) Well, next week, we're going to have a chance to see how much you love it because we're going to be doing something very special. We originally announced this podcast as 120 episodes where we do all 12 months of each year and we do the films. We realized, though, that one of the fun things to do at the end of any given calendar year for film nerds is pick your favorite films of the year. So we are doing a best of 1980 episode. And we'll do that for each year when we get to the end. Uh, Scott and I won't know each other's choices until we go on the air. I think perspective is a big part of this podcast, and this is one of the ways we can do that. So we really next time we're going to have something very special and fun for you, and we'll do that at the end of every year. So now it's 130 episodes we're talking about. And Scott, I can't believe we've actually done the first year. It feels really strange that we're done we're, we're thrilled that people like it really honestly yeah. thrilled and i and i really feel like it, it's now i i know what we're doing this for now and when we started it was more like okay here's this task and let's see if we can make it happen 
I'm enjoying this more and more. And the big thing I'm, I'm loving about it is the way you guys are reacting and the way you're talking back to us about it. And that is, that is the whole reason to do a show like this is to know that you're actually getting through to other film fans and you're having the real conversation about this stuff. And you guys so far, the films that you've gone and tried and the films that you're watching because of the show and your reactions to these movies, I, I'm loving every second of it. Thank you so much for listening to the first 12 I can't wait for next week, and then I can't wait to jump into 1981, which is a really strange year. Thank you so much for listening through all of 1980. We really hope you liked it. Leave us a review on iTunes, if you will, and uh, tell your friends. And that's all. (laughs) 